Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to the, the James Bond AZ podcast. podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. And thanks for joining us. I'm Brendan. I'm Tom, one of them. (laughs) And I'm the other Tom. (laughs) That gets confusing doing it like that. Uh, So this week is another special. And for me, it's a special with a big S because it's my Bond and probably our Bond, it's Pierce Brosnan. Very much, as we've discussed earlier, growing up, he was the fifth Bond, so in terms of the time frame, that's where we were growing up watching Bond, and I personally think he's he's the best one. Wow. <laughs> Whether you two agree or not, but that's partly because of how I feel about where you know I was growing up watching him, I guess. Bold, bold claim. It is a bold, bold claim. claim. Well, I've, obviously, the first film came out in 95. Uh, I would have been 13 at the time. Yeah. And it hit me, that golden I vividly remember seeing that, it hit me right at the perfect time for me getting into cinema because just, what, two years earlier, Jurassic Park had been out. A few years before that, Indiana Jones and um, the, uh, the, the Last Crusade. And then this came along and it just these films those three specifically in a row just really captured my attention and yeah I'll just always treasure him as the Bond that I saw first at the cinema and I I seem to remember Wheatley we went to see The World Is Not Enough together yeah and so again it has a special place in my heart for that reason (laughs) Um, oh how delightful (laughs) I wasn't going to bring that up (laughs) um yeah, I think I think for me, I think um, I don't have as fond memories as both of you when it comes to um, uh, Brosnan. I do. He's obviously he was he was the first time that I saw Bond at the cinema, but I was a pretty kind of 
I was watching a lot of Bond before then, so he was never really my first Bond. Yeah. Um, in general, I I always I'd I'd been watching like Sean Connery constantly from an early age. So um, he was he was important from the perspective that he was the first time I saw him on the big screen. But he definitely I, I definitely didn't see him as the Bond when I, when I first started watching him. And I seem to remember that towards the later films, um, World Is Not Enough and Tomorrow Never Dies, I I wasn't as interested as I was when Goldeneye came out. I don't I don't know if it's because. Um, You'd started drinking. I didn't quite buy into to the new Bond, <laughs> but or it's because I went I went to the cinema with Butler to see it. Um, but yeah, um, but I, I I do think he's brilliant. But yeah, I don't I not quite the same as your your view on Brosnan. Yeah, I think I think it helped also the the quick hit of like all his films are relatively close together. Uh, yeah, they really bashed him out on a, on a roll, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Which we'll so talk you get about, that, yeah. Which we'll, yeah, we'll cover that. Obviously, I think there's a lot to be said for the time you watch them as well. And at that time, and and you'll both be, probably be the same as this. I was going out a lot. I would got into started drinking and stuff like that. So it, there were other things going on, but um, so I probably didn't give it the attention that it deserved. Uh, but yeah, um, I I do remember. I, I actually I was trying to remember earlier. I don't remember seeing Tomorrow with Eyes at the cinema. Can't remember when that happened, but I do remember vividly the exact day that I went to see Goldeneye. Yeah, but I mean, for some people, this might be the first episode they've listened to because of Brosnan. And uh, yeah, welcome new listeners if you've not well, listened yeah. before. Um, we don't always just spend all our time talking about Pierce Brosnan. Brendan does, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it is we normally a, edit that out. <laughs> it is a great opportunity just to really luxuriate in <laughs> in Brosnan. Uh, for the whole episode. I'm really looking forward to it. So, shall we crack on? Let's do it. Start with his early life then. So, Brosnan. Uh, and as we said, this is a, this podcast is a nice opportunity for us to to kind of delve a bit more deeply into to, to some of the, well, all of the Bonds, um, not just in their films, but in, in who they are and, and how they actually became to be Bond. Um and Brosnan's one that I didn't really know a lot about. I think I probably knew a lot more about Roger because obviously he's written so many books and he does so many interviews and kind of stage shows that you kind of know a lot about him and Connery as well. You, you kind of I've, I've always known quite a bit about Connery. It's a well trodden yeah, it's a well trodden path, isn't it? Their their, their stories. And I, I would say yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I think that um, Brosnan for me now he's got the most interesting story about how he came to be Bond. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like definitely, there's so many things that I, I, I mean, I've he hasn't got a, he hasn't written a book really at all, has he? He's all the stuff that he's done is is kind of written about him. I I've looked at some uh, unofficial biographies and sourced from various websites, but um, yeah, I mean, I I can't wait for him to eventually do a biography. He's memoirs, he is writing yeah. some memoirs. He's writing them. But wow, it's taken well, that, a while. Yeah, that's that's going to be interesting because yeah, he do, he does have a pretty interesting life but I'll, I'll i'll start that by um talking about the very start of his life so he was an only child and he was born in ireland as you you're probably aware of but um he he had quite a difficult upbringing from from birth essentially his uh, father was a, a carpenter called uh, thomas brosnan um and he abandoned uh piz and his mother mary uh very shortly after Pierce was born, born, 
and by all the accounts I looked at, he wasn't a very nice man. He wasn't um, a very good father, and, and he wasn't he wasn't very nice to his his wife. So, not a good start for for, for Pierce. Um, and it, to be honest, it, it didn't get much better. Um, his mum, uh, after that, this is in Ireland, obviously very strict Catholic place. Um, a single mum, not really, you know, viewed in a very positive light by a lot of people. Um, she'd lost a lot of opportunities getting in, having a child, so um, she eventually she just moved to London uh, on her own and and left Pierce to stay with his grandparents um, in Ireland. Uh, so yeah, he lived with his grandparents for a while, and then both th- both of those died when he was six years old. Um, so he ended up kind of moving around various relatives and and. Um, like less less close relatives over the years which was not a very you know conducive upbringing for for somebody and uh yeah he he i've read many accounts where it talks about him being quite introvert being um kind of keeping himself to himself and um yeah he yeah he remembers in, in later life pierce has talked about how he remembers spending a great deal of time in his aunt's pub um, but also, he, he talks about being quite lonely as as, as a youngster, which is um, which comes out quite a lot in in a lot of the documentation that I've seen. Um, but he also says, uh, this is a quote, but maybe that's where the acting comes from, from spending so much time alone with your thoughts. And then there's a, a, there's quite a lot of quotes around. There's an there's an unauthorized biography that I I got quite a lot of information from. And um, there's a lot of quotes in there from people that lived around um, Piers at the time. Uh, one of them is, uh, I'm glad he's done so well, poor Piers. He was a lonely little boy. We're all so proud of him. He often played with my son, Andy, and the rest of my boys. I'll always remember him there standing at the front door with his little polished shoes. Um, <laughs> which is an interesting I read a, view. I, of, I read in, that, in the same book that his parents or his family made him wear shorts all the time. He wasn't allowed to yes. wear long trousers. Yeah, like the royal like Yeah, the royal apparently to, to get vitamin D yeah. in his legs. <laughs> so, Listen. So he didn't, he didn't get various diseases. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting book. I'm not sure how accurate some of it is. It's a wide range of sources that have obviously a journalist has come to a little town in... in Ireland to ask about the famous guy that comes from there so everyone wants to be a part of it so I'm not sure and it was a long time ago so I'm not sure how accurate it is but there's quite a lot of interesting stuff in there he uh, there's a lot of accounts of him getting into fights as a boy um, and in, in some respects getting bullied by people because I think people targeted him because he had such a strange upbringing he didn't have a mum and dad at the time and he moved around a lot um, but that's not where that ended um, at age 8 he he eventually went to uh, he went to school with uh, the uh, a, a Christian brother school. You know the the Christian brothers, mm. very strict yeah. Catholic school, famous for basically just being horrible to and very strict to, to kids. This and, is the De, um, De La Salle brothers, isn't it? They're, it's a religious order, and they're sort of famous for their yes. corporal punishment. Yes, and I also yes. looked into and them, and it, they was like sexual abuse scandals and all sorts of stuff, but. Um, yeah, doesn't sound sa- doesn't sound like fun. No, um, and it, at the time he talks about he, he, how religion was just rammed down his throat, um, uh, and the school itself was eventually closed down due to uh, to an article that appeared in the press. But various boys who went to the school have quoted um, what it was like. One said, "We'd t- we'd hear the swish of the strap all day long as he lashed out at one pupil after another. 
you'd be slapped for the simplest spelling mistakes. Um, but then things changed a bit, actually, and it got a bit better. When, when, when he was 11, his mother was, had finally got enough money. She was working in London at the time, um, well, since she left, and eventually she got enough money to finally bring him back over to London. So he, he moved over to live with her um, uh, in Putney, in fact. And this is where uh, uh, there was his stepfather. Uh, it was a man called Bill Carmichael, who uh, was a Scot- Scottish guy who was apparently quite a soft-spoken, nice man, um, and his mum was kind of the, the one in charge of the relationship, and he just kind of softly did you know was happy and and never never did anything wrong or shouted at pierce or anything like that but one thing that he did do was um he took pierce to the cinema when he was 11 11 years old and the film they took he took him to see was goldfinger which is quoted a lot throughout pierce's kind of biography type history i'm not sure how true half of it is i mean it's quite a nice quaint story saying the first film you ever saw was goldfinger and at the time you you thought right i want to be james bond and it well, that all worked out nicely i'm sure you must have seen another film before then it seems too <laughs> too, too um too convenient too, too convenient but even though it's it's a nice it's a nice little story um there's a, there's a quote here that said that talks about how um life was very different in ireland and it was obviously a little parochial town and there wasn't cinemas everywhere so coming to london was quite different he says um this is what pierce he says in ireland i've been brought up on a diet of old mother riley and norman wisdom so it was a bedazzling moment seeing this lady covered in gold paint i ended up getting a toy car with an injector seat but i didn't have any aspirations to be james bond the character really captured my imagination was odd job goldfinger's bowler hatted henchman I'm not sure how accurate it is. I read a couple of other accounts where he said he wanted to be James Bond. So, <laughs> slight. Uh, we'll wait till his memoirs come out to to clarify that. Um, but he, it was an important point in his life seeing Goldfinger, apparently, and, and it made him want to become, well, start to think about becoming an actor, mm. which uh, obviously played a large part in the rest of his life. And then, that from there, he 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 started his education. Yeah, I guess from. Um reading about him he was big big fan of the films not just goldfinger he, he, he would go to the movies quite often i understood but um yeah so when he was in london he um went to a school called the elliot secondary school and that's that's in putney it's now called the arc putney academy and a fun fact a couple of fun facts that school is the film uh, is the school in love actually so there you go uh, and the kid who would be king apparently is also in that film but there you go so yeah, he was. Um, I think moving from Ireland to this massive comprehensive school was quite a shock for him, a bit of a culture shock, and he was definitely seen as an outsider. And interestingly, he was actually quite a big lad for his age. He was like over six foot tall when he was. By the time he was like eleven years old, but but painfully shy, wow. and obviously being um, being made to wear shorts didn't help either. So um, <laughs> he was this shorts wearing eleven foot tall. Uh, sorry, yes, six foot tall, eleven year old. <laughs> And Irish yeah. as well in in the, in London and in like the sixties. This was at like that time, yeah. at that time, yeah. you know, very difficult for him. Um, and he said, uh, "This is a quote from Piers with an it, it, Piers in an interview with GQ. He says, going to London, an Irish immigrant, you were made to feel your Irishness. They never let you forget that you were Irish. They couldn't even say my name, couldn't say my name, Piers. They didn't want to say my name, so they just called me Irish. And he says he wore that as a badge of honour. Um, so." His best subjects while he was at school were English and art. And in fact, he, he actually only got two O-levels o- at, at school in English and art. And he, and he left school 
1969. But um, reading books around him, um, his classmates remember him as being quite arty, but very well behaved, very tidy, very clean, not sporty. Um, and also didn't show any interest in acting, no no performance art and uh, performing at school whatsoever. And so while he was a teenager there, he apparently he was a bit of a hippie, quite he had like long hair. He went to festivals, he talked about taking LSD um, at the Isle of Wight Festival. Um, and so he said he left school um, very early uh, in his life with very little credit of academia, just a folder of paintings and drawings and dreams of becoming a, pa- a painter. And so he went on to become a commercial artist. Um, and so I, when he left school at 16, he was working as a trainee commercial artist in a photo studio in Putney. And so someone at school apparently had gotten the job there. Um, and the, the company did commercial photo shoots for companies like Harrod, Selfridges, and they did catalogue shoots, things like that. He was getting paid £10 a week. And he also would occasionally do photo shoots for, for them um, when they needed an extra model in the background or whatever. Um, and so while he was working there, someone who worked in the dark room, um, kids, if you're listening to this, that's a, where you develop film. <laughs> <laughs> if you've never heard of a dark room before. Yeah, what's um, film? What's film? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and the guy working in the dark room was talking to him about the theatre club at the Oval House. Um, and he knew that Pierce was really into his movies. And that's where he invited him along. Um, and Brendan, you, did you look into the Oval House? Yeah. So this was the theatre club that he would he would frequent it once or twice a week to begin with. Um, and then eventually that became every night and he, he was quite smitten with acting quite quickly. Um, from what I understand in interviews, that's what, what, what he said happened. And so the, he then went on to join a, an actual theatre company who had just acquired a, an arts council grant. So he went touring throughout the country. Um, so then he went to the drama centre in London and trained for three years to be an actor. And then he described the feeling of becoming an actor and the impact it has had on his life. When I found acting or when acting found me, it was a liberation. It was a stepping stone into another life away from a life that I had. And acting was something I was good at, something which was appreciated. That was a great satisfaction in my life. So already you can see from the slightly strange and odd upbringing, he's finally sort of found something that he's good at and that he can give him some freedom. It gives him, you know, another avenue. So he graduated from the Drama Centre in 1975 and he started working... Uh, at the York Theatre Royal as an assistant stage manager uh, and also whilst acting on the side. He made his acting debut in a a play called Wait Until Dark and then within six months of that, impressively, he was selected by playwright Tennessee Williams to be the understudy for a character called McCabe in The Red Devil Battery Sign. He was on the bill as Pierce Brosman, though, so they got it slightly slightly wrong. But um, he's always the understudy, but the other guy, it didn't work out. So he recalls, it didn't work out for the other fellow. I got the call, Tennessee wants to see you now. I tore out of the flat, hopped on the bus. The bus was going too slow, so I got off and ran. 
My heart was pounding. Tennessee Williams wants to see me. I got to Tennessee's apartment and we read through two very emotional scenes and just let it fly. And I got the job. So from that, he his performances received wide acclaim. Um, and he actually got a telegram from Tennessee Williams saying, thank God for you, dear boy. <laughs> so obviously he was the, uh, the, the ray of sunshine in that performance. A um, couple of years later, he was chosen to be in a play called Philomena by Eduardo de Filippo. Um, and that was with starring Joan Plowright and Frank Finley. So Joe Plowright at the time was married to Laurence Olivier. And Olivier encouraged Brosnan to join a rep company. But wow. Brosnan had bigger ambitions than that. And he wanted to be in, you know, go to America. He said, I wanted to be an American actor. American acting is so much more sensuous. So he's got a, a slightly strange view of acting because you think about it, what's generally perceived is that English acting is the sort of good, honest acting. So he's 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 obviously watched a lot of films, like you said, and that's influenced him massively. But looking at pictures of him, he, he looks like a matinee idol from an early uh, age. Uh, yeah. absolutely yeah. he can see yeah. where his talents lie i mean obviously he's, an, he's yeah. a good actor but like he also like has a dazzling presence yeah he's, a, he's an old school style actor isn't he like the old golden era hollywood mm. yeah um winning smile actors that can they play all these these swashbuckling roles a roger yeah. moore type you might say mm. <laughs> that's yeah <laughs> yeah well maybe with a little bit of uh daniel craig thrown in <laughs> um so he continues his career he uh, made brief appearances in a couple of films that you you might have seen. Long Good Friday. Oh, yes. Yep. Classic. Um, and also Agatha Christie's The Mirror Cracked, which was directed by which Bond director? Glenn. No. Guy Hamilton. Guy Hamilton. Yeah. So there's a Bond connection already, straight Brilliant. away. There's always a Bond connection. Yeah, but really early on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some odd TV performances in shows such as The Professionals and uh, Murphy's Stroke and Play for Today. So he's he's getting getting out there and sort of earning his crust. And then his career moves on. Well, the next part of his career is quite interesting because it's largely surrounded by uh, probably... The most important relationship uh, that happened in, in, in the course of his life, where he met uh, an actress called Cassandra Harris, um, also known as, as Cassie. So I'll, I'll first I'll give you a bit of information on her so that um, for a bit of background. Um, she was the granddaughter of a German aristocrat and, um, an, uh, with, and an English-born wife. Uh, she was a very successful Australian actress until she moved to London in 1967, where she joined the National Theatre. Uh, she was married before and uh, to a film producer, Dermot Harris, who's the brother of Richard Harris. Uh, lasted eight years. She had two children. And um, she's, as well as stage roles, she starred in Space 1999. Don't know if you've ever seen that. You've probably seen clips of it. Um, and then she was in a few movies as well. She starred in a film called The Greek Tycoon, which also had Luciana uh, Paluzzi in it, who was, of course, Fiona Vol Volpe in, in Thunderball. Um, 
But Brosnan first met Cassandra uh, at a party in 1978. Uh, he was introduced through a, through a friend, um, uh, and Brosnan was starring in a stage play at the time. Uh, and the he was his friend was staying with Cassandra um, at the time, and Brosnan kind of went over to to visit. And his friend said, "Oh, get whatever you want. Take something out the fridge, um, and just kind of relax." And apparently, at the time he was he was wearing like the the outfit he wore on stage, so some really weird like you know fancy dress get up. He was overweight at the time. He said he was a bit of a mess. He had weird like his hair was done all weird and stuff. So when she came in and saw him just like eating out the fridge, she was like, "Who are you? Who are you? What are you doing?" <laughs> um, but he wasn't dissuaded. He 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 said at the time that he kind of fell for her straight away, and he went back and took her some flowers and um the 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 main time that they met was at a, a party um uh, where obviously cassandra was at and he'd been invited to she said she recalled that here was this funny looking man with short of a short haircut but we had so much in common acting books music and once we started talking we never stopped and brosnan said he'd been totally bowled over by this beauty um and the couple got married in in, in 1980 yeah, she she had a massive part to play in the role because at the time she was actually doing she was becoming quite famous within films and she was the Bond girl in For Your Eyes Only. So she um so around around that time she was doing really well. She was working in films. She's got the role in For Your Eyes Only. So she had a big part to play in actually kind of pushing Brosnan to take as many roles as he could and start getting involved in um finding these exciting opportunities that 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 came up. Um and yeah, so she she was appearing in a heist thriller called Rough Cut alongside Burt Reynolds, Leslie Ann Down, and David Niven, uh, until she eventually joined for Your Eyes Only. Uh, I won't go into too much depth about her because we'll be talking about her in a lot more depth when we when we come through to the, to her in the episodes. So yeah, obviously at the time during For Your Eyes Only, they were married. He was on set. Brosnan was on set a lot of the time, so he was spending a lot of time on a Bond set. He was not linked with Bond at that time. He was just the husband of, of one of the main characters. Um, and they even lunched with Cubby Broccoli during filming. Um, I did I did read that there was a comment that was made at the time, that which was what was that Cubby said he wanted to make Brosnan the next Bond to re- replace Marjorie Moore at that point. There's not a lot of evidence I can find to actually support that's the case, and it's definitely not mentioned in credible documents that I've read. But... Um, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting way to get there, and obviously it must have played a big part in reality to him eventually being Bond. Because how better a way to get in than being on a Bond set mm-hmm. and going to lunch with Cubby Broccoli and being a guy that you'd probably want to be Bond? It's all just kind of clicking into place. But a very lucky position to be in because he 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 was with Cassandra a long time before that, so it just kind of kind of fitted very nicely. And that's not the last time that he he met Cubby as well. No, their paths would cross quite a lot. And interesting with Cassie, he obviously took on her two sons as well, or her two children, which obviously for a young actor of that age is quite impressive. I think it speaks a lot mm. about the character of the man, that he yeah. was willing to do that. Um, yeah, I I think through all this research, a lot of these things I didn't know about before then. And if you didn't spend a lot of time looking into Peers, you wouldn't just you wouldn't have any knowledge of all this but there's a lot of things like that that i found out since that really do back him up as a great guy don't they as, yeah as, definitely he's really stood up to a lot of a lot of things and it 
it, this is just the start of it, isn't it? A man of honour and dignity, I think. I think a real bond. Yeah. So when he was like visiting Corfu, um, visiting Cassandra in Corfu for for your eyes only, um, I think it was Julian Glover as well on the film said that he he really thought that Pierce could make a great bond um, just from having dinner with him. Um, but yeah, after, while he was in Corfu, he was telexed a script for a, a show called The Manions of America. And he went back to London uh, from Corfu. He auditioned at the Dorchester and, and, and won the role. It was the sort of the lead role um, in this big American show. Uh, he was playing an Irishman called Rory O'Mannion. And it's a show about the Irish famine um, with emigration um, as the backdrop. It's, it's like a six-hour miniseries made, uh, made for TV in 1981. It also stars, interestingly, Kate Mulgrew, who went on to find fame in Star Trek as Captain Janeway. So fun fact for you. Um, so Piers at this point, you know, he thought, you know, I've made it. This was, this was his dream. He, he was going to America to become an actor. He said, he got off, I got off the plane in America. I, I felt the greatest I had ever had in my life. Um, the script, he had a script for the Mannions under, under one arm and, and, and he just had a great surge of emotion um, as, they list, as they lifted off the you runway. You can see where he was obviously, that was, Hollywood's just always in his sights, wasn't it? And that's that's yeah. he was working towards that all the time. Everything about him was was Hollywood at that point. Well, this it's interesting. This quote, yeah, from this interview, he said uh, with Irish America, he said he thought, I thought, by God, I've done it. It's my time, and I'm going to take it by the throat and fly with it because it was my time to take the, take the anger and the shame of the playground and put it on the film and perform it in a piece about what had been done to Ireland by the English back then. So it was a bit of a soapy show by all accounts, um, but it was pretty good. It was a bit of a success. It aired on ABC in, in September 1981. Uh, New York Times um, at the time said, yeah, they, they said it was less an exploration, more than a construction jumping to a panting bed scene whenever the more violent actions subsided temporarily. But interestingly, they pointed out that the cat, they said the cast is competent. Mr. Brosnan and Miss Mulgrew even managed to be sympathetic and believable, despite the generally wooden dialogue. So it was really this, this, this show that put him on the map, not just as an actor, but also as a sex symbol, um, especially in America and also here. And actually, off the back of the success, him and Cassie took out a bank loan to come to America they took out a bank loan. I think they said it was to renovate their kitchen or something, but they used the money to fly to America and just do rounds and rounds of auditions. They hired an old car and just went round doing auditions. And it was actually during that trip, Cubby invited Cassie over for dinner at his house in Beverly Hills. And, you know, Pierce, I think it just really, he caught the bond bug at that point. Um, and the, the report is that he would, that when him and Cassie were driving back to that hotel, he was kept trying the line out just for fun. You know, the name's Bond, James Bond, and it just <laughs> yes, I read this as really well. Really captured his his attention. And then there was sort of a two two hander. So there was the Mannions, and then he also got the lead in a, um, a BBC drama called actually it wasn't a lead; it was a supporting part, but a BBC costume drama called Nancy Astor. And again, it was that double hit of the hit in America, the hit in the UK that really just like, you know, set him up. Um, and at the time, yeah. so around about the same time after Octopussy um, came out, which was what, 83, there was obviously Roger was making a lot of noise about leaving the role. And, and there was a poll for who should be the next James Bond. And Brosnan won this poll like by a landslide. Mm. So you can see it's in his mind. It's in the public's mind. 
it's just destiny for him at this point. Um, but obviously, there's a lot more to the story before he actually gets there because I guess he got his big break, his big, big break next. Yeah, in a show called Remington Steel. Um, so, yeah, he was at the time of getting this, he was best known for the role in the Manions of America and he'd auditioned for Remington Steel um, but was refused initially by the executives who were working at NBC. They were concerned that he wasn't big enough. But Stu Irwin, who um, was one of the producers, was adamant they wanted Pierce Brosnan to, to play this role. So it happened. And um, Pierce says, I got lucky when I came to America. I was 27 years old and landed my first audition series called Remington Steel. Life was good. I felt it could be anything I wanted to be. And what I wanted above all was to be in the movies. So Remington Steel, um, I'm not overly aware of of it prior to this. So it's an American uh, crime drama and it stars Pierce Brosnan and uh, an actor called Stephanie Zimbalist. And uh, it ran from 1982 to 1987. So the premise is Laura Holt is a private investigator and she's opened up a detective agency in her name but has found that clients don't want to hire a woman to do that job. So it doesn't matter how qualified she is or you know what what level of experience she has then they're just not interested so she creates a fictitious character who she names Remington Steele and that's where Pierce Brosnan comes in and he plays a a, th- a thief and a con man whose name is never revealed throughout the whole series <laughs> He, well, apparently he doesn't even know what it is. No, they, yeah, he claims yeah, he's, not he's to know. Still... So it's it's yeah. you know, Remington Steele is who he's who is known as for the five seasons. So that there's a back and forth throughout the five series of who's really in charge, and that's that's why it's all built on a bit of a will they won't they relationship between the two lead actors. So that was that was the main appeal to audiences. Apparently, was that tension, the sexual tension that was created. Uh, but there were many rumours that were later proved true that they didn't get on at all um, due to numerous reasons. You know, it was a lot of a lot of shooting, a lot of stress, a lot of, you know, TV is it's a lot of work, isn't it? So just a bit of conflict, but it got to the point where they weren't t- talking at all when they weren't in character. So it was just not even good morning, nothing. Um, and that's confirmed by their co-star, Doris Roberts, she she said that it, it just got ridiculous in the end and, and it contributed to the why the show had to end because it, it just couldn't go on. But I watched some clips of the show and there's a... Uh, I watched the opening episode, season three, episode one, and it's called Steel At It. So each each episode has got a little play on the word steel. Yeah, they run out of those plays by quite early pretty on. pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's strange that I picked this. I mean, I picked it because it was the most watched one, and it, it's probably because it's just a forty-five minute audition for Bond. He spends the whole episode in a tuxedo, so the first half is in a black a black tuxedo, and then in the second part, he he is in a wetsuit and he jumps onto a boat a boat party, 
and he's undercover and he takes the wetsuit off and he's wearing a white tuxedo. He couldn't be, it's just, it's, it's Bond. The whole thing is Bond. He looks like Bond already. I I read somewhere that it's Bond Junior. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely his, his audition. Judging by that, I imagine all five seasons are just five long years of auditioning for Bond. Yeah. Um, which is where the link comes in. You know, those rumours, everyone's talking about it, only ramps up after he's playing a character that resembles Bond. Maybe they'll make a film of it one day. With There was talk, but it's uh, apparently yeah. not going to happen now. But yeah, Brosnan Probably did speak about it a couple of years ago, but nothing nothing came into fruition. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we'll talk about more about Remington Steel in a bit. Um, but yes, as as Remington Steel was was continuing, um, he he was he was working on that for obviously quite a while. Uh, I think it was seven seasons in total. But after six seasons, and I'm not 100 percent sure on this, but I think that's right. He um, was around the same time that Roger Moore was his. I mean, his Roger Moore's role as Bond was in question for a, a few films earlier than that. I think even. Well, few eyes only. There, Cubby was talking about contracts and and if he was going to continue. But when it came to a view to a kill, that it that was it really. They knew that Roger was doing that one last film. That was it, and it was time to find a new one. So things are really heating up in the in the broccoli um, family as 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 to who was going to be the next Bond. And a lot of casting went underway, and there's a lot of big names associated with it, especially around that time. There were. During every Bond film, there's casting going on, and we know a lot about like Brolin and people who were who just came before uh, during Octopussy. But during Victor Kill, some of the main names which we know of were Sam Neill, um, Christopher Lambert or Lambert, and uh, Mel Gibson. Um, but there were loads, loads more. You just have to look at a list on there. There's like 20 people mm-hmm. that were were in there running for it, and um, and Brosnan underwent apparently a three day screen test for for the role. Um, and did very well. Uh, there's, I don't think there's a. I don't, have you either really seen any clips of the screen test? There's a photo. Actually, there's a photo, isn't yeah. there? There's a screen test of Sam Neill, which is really interesting. But there isn't there any of um, of Brosnan. No. Um, but apparently, it all happened very quickly. And I think this is probably a testament to the fact that they probably knew that Brosnan was one of the top when ones in the running for it at the time. And and um, and Cobby already met him. He'd done Remington Steel. He was a, he was pretty close to being a shoe in based on all of this stuff that had, that happened over that time. Um, so the media jumped on him and they were just like, this is the next Bond. He's definitely the next Bond. It wasn't, you know how at the moment people are saying, oh, is it this guy who's who's top of the list? And none of them are really shoo-ins. You're not, you're not thinking that's definitely going to be him. At this time, it was just a done deal. Mm. There was I watched an interview with, you'll have seen a Terry Wogan interview. Yeah. It comes up. If you, yeah. t- if you search Piers Bosden on... YouTube, it comes up like five times. It's quite a weird interview to watch, actually. Bros- uh, Wogan doesn't let him talk. He literally <laughs> no. stops him after every sentence and asks him another question. I don't know why. But um, yeah, the media went mad and they're just like, this is the next Bond. It's, he's definitely the next Bond. And you see these interviews of, with, and even in that interview, you kind of know that he, he knows he's going to be the next Bond. He's pretty coy about it, but it's pretty, pretty obvious. Um, and to the point where... Brosnan was even trashing Remington Steel. His contract is finished with Remington Steel, and he, he was saying that he didn't really want to do it after the first series. It was, and he said it was like working in a factory just to make money. Hated it. <laughs> didn't want to do it. It's rubbish. Just like a stepping stone to becoming um, to, to working in the movies. Um, and then, and Cubby says that a new contender entered the scene. Piers Brosnan, a young actor, star of the hit series Remington Steel. UA was strongly behind him, largely because of his successful TV image. 
In terms of looks and style, he'd have probably taken us along the Roger Moore route. We were looking for a harder edge actor who could take Bond to a new dimension. Still, of all these we'd seen, Brosnan appeared to be the best compromise. So even even with that, he's he's not saying he's perfect. He's just saying he's got he's got enough of everything to to be the, to be the lead runner. Um, but there were he wasn't also there there were he wasn't a sh- everyone didn't love him. Yeah, they, they at the time he was he was really just a TV guy as well. They they just said that he probably wasn't famous enough for Bond. He because at the time if you think about it, this was quite early on and. Roger Moore was a pretty big star when they got Roger Moore involved. He'd acted in quite a lot of stuff. And just being a star on um, Remington Steel wasn't quite enough. And at the time, the the people invest, the investors for like MGM were probably saying, get Mel Gibson in. He's a, he's definitely going to make you money. He's the guy. So there were, it, wasn't, it wasn't like everybody was saying he's the perfect person for it. There were people that were saying that, 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 that there were other actors that would look better. But yeah, so eventually, they, they, yeah, he got, they, they gave him the gig. They said... Um, He's out of his contract. We want him to be the next Bond. He'd got the job. Yes, so Remington Steel was then officially cancelled at the end of the 1985-86 television season. Um, It was doing okay. had about 28% of the audience share at the time, but... um, it had to basically they decided it was time to to get rid of it and um to make way for a series called hunter which i wasn't aware of um and the head of nbc at the time said about remington steel he said i think creatively it had peaked we'd done 88 to 90 stories and with shows like that you're just looking at diminishing returns how, how can you regenerate a show and so on the day of the cancellation the new york post uh, announced that brosnan was the fourth james bond they got wind of it they said, you know, this is happening. Um, and so when they cancelled it, they basically were given 60 days in order to reverse the decision if they were able to resell it to another network. Um, this is the um, the MTM, Mary Tyler Moore studio that created the show. They had 60 days to resell it to another network if they were able to. So they're the 60 days. So Brosnan says, during the time, the 60 days, I'd done my screen test. I'd accepted it. The living daylights was sat on my bedside table. I would open it occasionally and say the name's Bond, James Bond. He did wardrobe fittings. He met with Cubby. He had photographs taken with Cubby and I, Cubby and I standing outside the James Bond stage, standing before his Rolls Royce. And you're right. He started trashing the show. He called it Twaddle in an interview. So six, two months after the cancellation... M- uh, NBC reversed the decision literally on the 60th day. They said that they'd had pickets, that they had fan letters, but the truth was basically they'd able to capitalise on Brosnan's success, <laughs> got massive ratings, and so they decided, oh, we're going to keep the show because it's doing really well. But actually, it was doing really well because everyone wanted to see the next James Bond in action, yeah. so it was kind of stupid. It was an awful move, wasn't it? It was a horrible thing to do to someone. Dreadful decision. Um, they actually offered the chance. So basically his contract would have run for two more years um, and they were going to allow the um, the show to delay production to let him go off and play Bond in The Living Daylights. But Cubby just said, no, I'm not having it. So then they went off and they... Everything caught. or nothing. It was everything or nothing, yeah. yeah. They, they, they cast Dalton. And we'll talk about Dalton when we get to him. Like, let's leave that for another time. But... Um, yeah, the final season, which they agreed to make an abbreviated six hours of made-for-TV films, um, 
they were broadcast in 1987. They weren't a hit. <laughs> um, and Brosnan, you know, was really, really unhappy. He was on the front cover of People magazine uh, in a suit looking really grumpy with the headline, take this job and shove it. Trapped on Remington Steel, Pierce Brosnan sounds off on his battle to be the new James Bond. He, It was too late. He'd lost it. He, it had gone. And later yeah. on, you know, he talked about it and, and he, he called it a great trauma. Uh, which you can imagine, he, you know, he, in his head in those 60 days, he had the role of James Bond. And it was yeah. just w- wrangling between the studio and the, and the agents that just spoiled it for him. He was literally on the beach with a bottle of champagne ready to celebrate. His phone rang. It was his agent. And his agent said the deal's fallen through. Not going to happen. And so the deal was off. That was it. Yeah. And, and Brosnan said, you know, you take the blow and you move on. Um, they turned to Dalton delayed the shoot slightly so that he could finish shooting on his film but then he was completely theirs he was there he was their bond and that was it then for the future um eon then you know they refused to acknowledge that pierce brosnan was ever in the frame they said that uh, brosnan had never been cast and then dalton was always eon's first choice mm. and that but that's just the classic eon way isn't it yeah yeah um you don't trash you don't suggest that there's another actor in the frame when you've got your bond it's like they always say with daniel craig daniel craig is the bond at the moment we don't talk about the next bond which is fair yeah Yeah. it's a smart move and it it's always worked yeah but yeah poor brosnan that's like (laughs) just really dumps on him as bad as possible he's worked that hard and he's it's all he's ever wanted and that's it for him he's thinking that that's my chance gone that's it. They thought his chance was gone. Yeah. So in the book, some kind of hero, he says that uh, I remember seeing billboards for Timothy in the living daylights. It had a delayed reaction, I think, for six months or so. So when Timothy came out in the movie, the full impact of it and the onslaught of what happened really came crushing in. He talked about driving down through Beverly Hills. And then by the time he got to the beach, he had to pull over and scream at some seagulls just to get the rage out. <laughs> he was that annoyed. And he actually did end up watching the film on a plane with his son, Sean, who really wanted to watch it. Um, And he was quite complimentary. Um, But actually, like, you know, people would come up to him in the streets and commiserate with him and be like, we're really sorry you didn't get James Bond. People got that invested Mm. in him getting Bond. Um, But he took the blow and he moved on. Yeah. Yeah, he he moved on. So Remington Steel ended uh, in 1987. Uh, so it was a waste of time, wasn't it? They just ruined it, ruined his Bond chance and then <laughs> left him. He went on to, he appeared in a, a few films. Uh, Fourth Protocol, which was a Cold War uh, thriller with Michael Caine. Um, the Deceivers. Uh, while, whilst filming The Deceivers, actually, his wife, uh, Cassandra, she became quite ill. And she was told that it was fine until later on it was diagnosed um, that she had ovarian cancer. So he sort of, while he was looking after his wife, he took a bit of a back step from all the acting career to look after the kids and look after his wife. And he also turned to painting. So he's gone all the way back to painting that, that was at the beginning of his life. And he said, um, I started painting in 1987 when my late wife had cancer. I've been painting out of pain and now the pain sometimes comes through in colour. Mm. Um, so that was his way of, of dealing with it. So sadly, she, she died uh, in 1991 at the age of 43. 
So he'd, he'd done a few bits and pieces, um, but the main thing was looking after his wife. Um, so he did The Lawn Mower Man. Uh, Great film. Is it? I really like The Lawn Mower Man. I think it was, it was like one of the first like futuristic films that I watched and thought, oh, this is smart. This is a smart way to, to tackle the future. It was a bit more interesting than the standard sci-fi stuff that you got. But yeah, I don't get what you're saying. It's not a, it's not a classic film. Um, <laughs> Around the World in 80 Days. Um, the, these were these were done while uh, his wife was sort of recovering a bit, like in between. So it gave an opportunity to go away and work on these projects. Um, in 1989, he had a conversation with Tim Burton about playing Batman. Yes. Interesting. I did not know at all, and that's incredible. But he, um, there was no formal offer made because he turned it down straight away. Uh, he, yeah. he said, it was the beginning of these huge movies. And I just thought, Batman. Batman held such an indelible place in my own childhood, but I said something flippant to Tim Burton like, any guy who wears his underpants outside his trousers cannot be taken seriously. So, shot it down. Not interested. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously, I imagine when, when Batman came out, you'd look back and go, oh, why did I do that? Yeah. But five years later, he'd suddenly go, so glad I did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he struggled with his wife's death as well, uh, as you would imagine. He said, when, you, when your partner gets cancer, then life changes. Your timetable, reference for normal routines, and the way you view life, all this changes. Because you're dealing with death. You're dealing with the possibility of death and dying. So he needed a bit of time out and that's what he did until uh, 1993. He made his mark on the big screen in Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, So in case you're not familiar with the plot, it features uh, an actor called Daniel who, after it's played by Robin Williams, after a bitter divorce, he disguises himself as a female housekeeper. As you Uh, do. so he can spend time with his kids who are held in custody by his, his uh, ex-wife, her, Miranda, who's paid by Sally Field. So Pierce plays Miranda's uh, new love interest, Stu, who is a suave and charming guy with a fancy car. Does that remind you of anyone? <laughs> um, so that, I mean, for me, that's uh, we watched that as a family and the, chewed the tape up. We watched it so much. Um, and could quote every single line. Um, but a, a fantastic film directed by Chris Columbus, who is a big Bond fan and actually um, recommended Pierce for the role, um, putting a good word for him. But Pierce talks very fondly about Mrs. Doubtfire. He, it remains one of his favourite projects. And he said, at day's end, you want to look around and hopefully you've had a handful of films that you can be proud of participating in. This is definitely one of those movies for me. It was, um, it was definitely one of the top ones that he's, he's remembered for. Yeah, especially in 100%. that era. Before then, there was nothing you did that was at that scale. I mean, that was enormous. Hit that was top of the the charts for ages, wasn't it? I remember it was yeah. on the cinema for months. Yeah, it's a sort of. I mean, it's a, a vehicle for Robin Williams's talents, isn't it? But yeah, get involved because you know it's going to be popular. So. Yeah, That's... and he plays an amazing counterpart to Williams as the kind of funny man, kind of, you know, rubber-faced, 
yeah, comedian. Abs- absolutely. He's a great straight man to it, but plays it likably. He's not meant to be dislikable in it. He's he's just a he's yeah, just well, the worst. It's your it's your ex wife. It's the it's the worst possible outcome for <laughs> yes. your ex wife, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Like the yeah, most he's charming, good. most and, handsome. And, yeah, yeah. Um, he, and he is. He's just he's the perfect person for that. Yeah. Well, he said in an interview as well um, because he was playing opposite Robin Williams, and they said, "How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you act against that?" And he said, "You just play it." honestly and as straight and normal and nice as you can which is yeah. you know um so i mean it really is it seems like a great production to be on everyone talks about each other in such fond memories sally field said pierce is perfect in every way during all the months of shooting mrs doubtfire i never knew which man i was more in love with robin or pierce um and pierce recalls a story about when he first met robin williams um which was on one of the first days of the shoot and they asked him uh, if he wants to go meet Robin Williams. He said, yeah, sure. I went into the makeup trailer and Robin was there. He was sitting at the end of the trailer in his Hawaiian shirt, his big hairy arms and his hairy legs coming out of his cargo pants. But he had the head of Mrs. Doubtfire. (laughs) And he says to him in Mrs. Doubtfire's voice, he said, Pierce, Pierce, oh Pierce, you're so handsome. Oh, look at you, Pierce. Give us a kiss. Come here, give us a hug. And that was his first experience of... uh, the whirlwind that was Robin Williams. Brendan, I'm disappointed um, we didn't get the accent. Come on. No, I, I was tempted, but I just can't, I couldn't do it justice. Come on, you're an actor. <laughs> You've got this covered. If one of you wants to give it a go, I can do the helpers on the way. I'll <laughs> <laughs> do. Um, so, so yeah, that was a very, a very big hit for him in 1993. Well, during you, you've jumped forward to Mrs. Doubtfire, but in between the time where he was suggested as being Bond or hailed as being the next Bond, he did do a few things, and you you kind of um, you, you you brush against that slightly when you're talking about him picking up jobs during the the period during his his uh, late wife's death, where he's kind of just doing lots of things, and some of the stuff he did is actually quite interesting because he was so involved with the the role of bond and people associated him with it he started picking up jobs as a bonder like essentially because people people knew that he was you know meant to be bond you wouldn't get that with the the people nowadays that are touted as being the next bond because they're not heavily associated with it but people did just think he was going to be bond so he he worked on a lot of of ad campaigns um as a, a bonder like character and one of these was diet coke probably the most famous one in fact he did uh, two main adverts over the course of two years for diet coke where he played a kind of um bond white dinner jacket wearing guy that um they're quite cheesy adverts for diet coke there's a lot of ninjas run into a room and throw shurikens at him he throws a ice bit of ice down trips up a ninja drinks some coke so i think one of them is just shoots the coke can and some coke falls into his glass it's pathetic <laughs> um but the second one of those that he does is on a train and he's kind of climbing across a train and there's always ninjas jumping on the- i don't know where the ninjas come from it i don't think they've quite watched a bond film before but there's loads of ninjas in it um and interestingly there's he talks, he talks about these adverts and he says uh with the with the Diet Coke one, they were going to film it in British Columbia. Then they were going to film it in Ireland. Then Los Angeles. Then New York. And where did they end up? Now it's going to be filmed in Peterborough. Peterborough, <laughs> it seems, is the only place with a train that fits Diet Coke's requirements. It's also the only place that fits the requirements of a train that you have in Goldeneye. 
So that's an interesting uh, New Valley. <laughs> same place Excellent. it's filmed, which is very strange. So he's been back there twice in a very short <laughs> period of time. His links with Bond are constantly racking up. Um, and so, yeah, he did those adverts. He also did a, a cigarette advert for Lark, which is a Japanese um, cigarette brand, which is really closely linked with Bond films. Um, Dalton, act, oh, although actually normally only people do it after they've starred in Bond films. So Dalton did one in 1989 for Lark Cigarettes. Moore did one as well a long time before that. I mean, they are horrible adverts. They're really cheesy adverts. And he's not actually... Dalton one, The Dalton one and the Moore one are a little bit more Bond-like. The, the um, Pierce Brosnan one, he's not really Bond. He's more like a kind of cool Indiana Jones character or something like that. He's on a boat in a jungle and there's people chasing him through this little house. Um... But yeah, it, he he's, he did those things during that time, and he talks about not a lot about it, but he does mention why he did it, and obviously it was it was to make money, and he was he was cashing in on 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 the bond bond name. Um, he says um, you have to look at your career and think, well, this is who I am, and this is what I do, and I may not get a job next year, and I've got a wife and three children, and the more money you get, the more money you need, and the money that you get for two days' work cannot be sneered at. And I read somewhere, I don't know how accurate it is, but you get quite a lot of money for these adverts. You get like, like a couple of hundred thousand pounds for, for giving your name to, to these adverts. So it's worth doing. And he didn't know he was ever going to be a Bond again. So take the money and run for, for as long as you can because he might even get a job in, in a few years' time. You, you don't know as a jobbing actor. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of what he was up to before yeah. he got involved heavily. The Lark cigarette situation is actually quite interesting because I think they paid for the product placement in, in the Dalton film. So Dalton's Bond smokes Lark. I'm sure. I, I'm fairly sure. I don't know if that's 100% true. But like if you do an advert in Japan, there's a very small chance in those days of it being seen here or, or in America. So it's yeah. probably quite a safe bet for him. But doing those adverts, actually, it's quite really quite interesting that he was still keen to be associated so that he could be seen as Bond in the public eye, I think. And this was a really fascinating, sort of leads to a really fascinating chapter, which I didn't know very much about. But in 1989, Kevin McClory, Hmm. that name again, we'll ring the bell every time we say his name, shall we? Um, (laughs) But he was back on the scene. Now, he obviously wrote Thunderball, the book, with Ian Fleming, or at least he helped contribute ideas towards it. That then led to a lawsuit against Ian Fleming, and then he had to claim credit, and he became the producer on Thunderball, and then he had the rights to the film scripts. Anyway, he was then, in 1989, touting a film called Atomic Warfare based on the Thunderball scripts, and he actually approached Piers Brosnan, or so the story goes, um, at that time. And in 1989, uh, TV Week in Australia... Uh, this is a magazine. Um, uh, Kevin McClory did an interview and he said, I talked to Pierce in Ireland um, and this is, and he talks about the film, but it's called Warhead 8 at this point. And he says, but it's at this stage, it's not our interest to comment. We have the way our opposition have been behaving in the past. He's talking about um, Cubby there. We may find the fellow suddenly gets a 10 year contract. And he's in Australia. He's basically t- trying to find investors for this film. He says that the film is going to be set in Australia. They're going to be do a lot of underwater filming um, in the Great Barrier Reef. Um, it's going to have James Bond in it. And, and they wanted Piers Brosnan to pay Bond. This is 1989, obviously, when um, Dalton is Bond. So 
that's quite interesting. But then actually, I found an interview with, with Pierce Brosnan in 1997 when he's promoting Tomorrow Never Dies. And the interviewer asked him outright, did you speak to Kevin McClory about making a Thunderball remake? And he says, there is a truth to that. This is Brosnan speaking. We approached Kevin, actually. So Brosnan approached Kevin McClory wow. about making Thunderball. This is how keen he was to do it and how sore he was about losing out on the role. He says, it was in the days of Tim Dalton and I'd seen what had happened with Tim's second outing and I thought, why not? Kevin, I knew who he was. I knew he had a script. I knew he could do a remake of Thunderball and I thought, why not? Obviously, they're both Irish filmmakers, so possibly a connection there that we weren't aware of before. But he said, let's go to him and give the Broccolis a run for their money and I'll do my own James Bond. I had a producer, a very good producer, and there were Japanese investors. But then the litigation and all the paperwork, he said, bogged it down Um and obviously, this is the time where Sony, when Brosnan was making um, James Bond films later on, Sony had the rights to make Thunderball, the Thunderball remake. And so he then starts saying, you know, Sony could go out there and make another Bond film. They've got they've got the wherewithal to do it. But why would they do it? It's a remake of a remake of a Bond movie, because obviously they'd already remade it as, as yeah. Never Say Never Again. But I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. yeah. And then this is even more interesting. This is another layer to this, which I did had no clue of. In 2005, so think about the timing. This is three years after Die Another Day. He'd been let go as Bond. Pierce Brosnan um, was linked with following Sean Connery by teaming up with Kevin McClory for Arrival of the Blow <laughs> 7 film. So, so this was... Yeah, apparently that cycle started happening again. Either McClory went to Brosnan to try and get him back as Bond to do a Thunderball remake, or they just started talking again. But obviously that never that never came to pass. But yeah, that was in um, in two thousand and five. That was what, according I would not to. Want to, I would have not wanted to spend any time with McClory. <laughs> just talking about once Thunderball. You've gone, once you've talked to him back for that Thunderball for a night, stuck in a pub with him for a night, <laughs> next night you get there, you go, oh, what have you been up to? Well, Thunderball then, let's start. Uh, but yeah, just how close that came to happening, you know, a never say never again with Piers Brosnan, how, how interesting that would have been. Yeah. Oh, Christ. Yeah, I can't even imagine what it'd be like. I don't want to imagine it. <laughs> so then we come back to... Uh, canon bond official bond so timothy dalton's just done license to kill and they enter into pre-production for uh, his his third film he's contracted for three but they, it hits a snag because there's the legal issues uh with the united artists um mgm and eon which we'll touch upon in future podcasts so that put a halt to that and meant that it was a it there was a delay and then when that was settled in 1994, he was asked to come back uh, and he said he'd actually changed his mind and that he wanted to do one. So he just wanted to do one, take the best bits from the, the previous two and consolidate it and, and, and do that. And, uh, and Cubby said, no, you can't do that. You need to, we need someone to build a, a bit of a legacy and do you know, four or five films. Um, which Timothy Dalton thought was fair so that that whole timothy dalton leaving the role is actually quite amicable um no hard feelings sounds like one of the most amicable things that's ever happened with it, bond it does doesn't it yeah. every time i read every about him it's oh <laughs> tim's very happy with all this <laughs> yeah yeah um 
so yeah, he didn't want to do the role for what he saw as the rest of his life, so he 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 gave it up. Um, which of course means they're back again, looking for another Bond. Um, here we go. Here we go. So, as 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 there always is, there was many names being thrown around. Um, I'm just going to mention a couple of names again. You can go online and look. It's a long list, as there always is, with varying, you know, legitimate uh, facts, whether it's whether it's real or not. But mm. Ray Fiennes was apparently touted. He, of course, goes on to play M. Uh, Liam Neeson, it's quite well documented that he uh, he turned the role down because his wife said she wouldn't marry him if he took it. Uh, he <laughs> didn't want to be associated with action roles, which, uh, if you look at his later <laughs> yeah. career, that's very interesting. Um, Sean Bean, who they were really impressed with, um, with his audition. So... So much so that they let him play 006 uh, in GoldenEye. Um, And Paul McGann, Mm, who was actually the backup choice. He was the big one, wasn't he? He was the big one if if, uh, they didn't get the man they wanted. So MGM wanted Pierce Brosnan. And finally, finally we're there. You know, it's, it's been up and down all around... And he's finally got the part. I bet he was sat by his phone sweating <laughs> until, until that contract was sorted. Yeah, so so he got that he got the phone call, didn't he, from his uh, agent who said just said hello, Mister Bond. Yeah, that's it. Mm. Um, I bet he got that same phone call a few times from people before then, and he was like, just give <laughs> yeah, it to stop. stop. It. <laughs> so um, he said. From 1986 until the summer of last year, this was, he was speaking in 94, uh, wherever I went, people would say, you would have made a great James Bond. Weren't you going to be James Bond? You should have been, you could have been, you may have been. Yes, 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 yes. It was like unfinished, unfinished business in my life. I couldn't say no to it this time around. Of course not. Um, so it was announced at a press conference in June 1994 at the Regent Hotel in London. And he looks very different. If you remember the the photograph you've got with um, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, he's, he's got, got long hair and a beard. And that's because the next day he was going to start production on Robinson Crusoe. So that's that's what he looked like. But um, yeah, it's a bit George Lazenby. Yeah, but <laughs> very George Lazenby at the premiere. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, finally he, he gets the role, and it's. All that hard work's paid off. And apparently they didn't do a screen test um, the second time around. They just used John Glenn's screen test from the last time, looked at it and said, yeah, you've still got, he's still got it. Um, which is amazing, really, that they yeah. were just yeah. that set on him. Michael G. Wilson said they didn't, they didn't see anyone else, really. They didn't, as, as taking the role. Like they wanted Pierce, they had their heart set. So, yeah. I imagine that's the way it always goes with them. If they've got the hearts on something, it's very difficult to sway them. I've re- every time I read anything about the details of working with the the, the, the broccolis, it's um, yeah. Once once they've got the hearts out on something, it's very difficult to sway them. Whether it's a script, a, a an actor, or anything. So yeah, good work, Pierce. Yeah, I feel exhausted just getting to this point of the podcast for him. I'm like, oh, finally, yeah. he's done it. Yeah, not <laughs> to start the films yet, and they do get exhausting. <laughs> 
<laughs> More about them later. Thanks for listening to this episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. So we will return with part two of the Pierce Brosnan special, which we will cover Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, and then his post-Bond career and his personal life. So it's another packed episode. Yeah. Expect a lot of discussion from us on the films. Because we're gonna we're gonna be covering the films individually throughout the podcast. So, so this next episode is more about our thoughts on the films and Brosnan in particular in those yeah. films. Yeah, absolutely. So in the meantime, if you do want to get in touch, where can we be found? You can email us on uh, podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk, or you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at jamesbondatoz. But don't forget to listen, uh, to like and subscribe and leave us a nice review wherever you listen. And if this is your first podcast, why don't you go back and listen to some of the older ones? Um, I think you'll find a lot of interesting stuff in there. Absolutely. And please return. See you next time. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time. Bye. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. Podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.